Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and help us to rightly apply it to our lives. Lord, that you would use it to make us a greater reflection of Jesus in this world for his glory. Amen. Um, anticipating that this was going to be the highest streamed service in the history of Park Street Church, which I'd like that to go on record, Rich, if we could. Um, you may see a couple weird ad product placements in the sermon, like this introduction is brought to you by the Bible, the greatest selling book of all time. Pick one up. Or this illustration is brought to you by Starbucks. Um, so, uh, but in seriousness, as we move through this period of Lent, um, and we focus more on our mortality, our need for forgiveness, and a Savior. Uh, during this time, let us really enter into that space as we think about what it means um, or, or how much we need Jesus Christ in our lives. Let us use these circumstances in our lives as Christians not to be people who suffer and are discomforted without hope, but a people who suffer with great hope knowing that Jesus Christ is going to redeem all things, and he uses our suffering to make us a greater reflection of him in this world. And so as we move through this period of Lent, I invite you, as you, dis as you experience discomfort, uh, fear, anxiety about what is going on, I encourage you to reflect more deeply on the sufferings of Jesus and ask how he might be using those things in your life through this period of Lent to draw you closer to him, knowing that we um, have the hope of the gospel. And in such a time as this, as Julian was talking about just earlier, uh, I believe our sermon topic is, is very relevant. Uh, now as we are faced with our mortality, as this virus has been getting to spread all over the world at a very rapid rate, uh, the question that we are looking at this morning is one that we all wrestle with one way or another. Perhaps we are wrestling with it more now than we have in recent history. It's a question that just about every human will ask. It's a question that even non-religious people will have on their deathbed. There are a couple different research studies that were done, one in 2015 by Pew Research, and another in 2016 by a few different universities on the West Coast. And they were trying to answer the question of what do Americans think about the afterlife? Do Americans believe that the afterlife exists? And in both cases, the research found that about 80% of Americans believe in an afterlife. Of course, that number was higher among Americans who considered themselves religious, but the number was actually unusually high for even among Americans who did not consider themselves very religious. And so if we truly believe in an afterlife, that, and that brings up the question, well, then how do we get there? Who can be saved? And our passage today actually presents us with a major obstacle to salvation. But it also provides us with the answer of how do we get there? I have a good friend who's just entered into a battle with cancer. And it's a scary thing. She's my age. She has kids the same age as my kids. And one day, everything was normal in her life. Everything was fine. And she started to experience some discomfort, but nothing that seemed too alarming. So she decided to go to her doctor. 
and receive the terrible news that she has stage four cancer. And it's scary to think that there was something growing inside of her and she had no idea that it was there, spreading to her body and slowly killing her. And I believe in our time there is a great spiritual cancer that we are all unaware of. And that is the cancer of consumerism, materialism, and the love of money. And growing up in our culture, sometimes I don't think we realize how deeply it impacts our lives and every aspect of our thinking. And a lot of times we have no idea that it's there and how it's spreading. It can manifest itself in the hunger for money and power. It can manifest itself in thinking our, in, in our stat, in thinking our, well, we're better than somebody else because of our status. It can cause us to view people as a transaction, a simple exchange, whether that is an exchange uh, through, uh, through uh, hooking up and in our culture, just two people using each other as a transaction, or those who have so much who then start to believe that they can take advantage of those who have so little. Consumerism, materialism impacts how we think about our faith in Jesus as well. It can be easy to see our relationship with Jesus as a mere transaction. Jesus, I believe in you. Now I get to go to heaven. What a deal. Consumerism should be on the radar of every Christian. Something, if left untreated, can cause great harm and spiritual death in our life. But the good news this morning is that Jesus has the cure to this disease. And here we see in our passage that Jesus is on his way to the cross. From Mark 8 on, we see a greater emphasis on discipleship and Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God. And in the passage immediately before this one, Jesus uses children as an example of those who can enter the kingdom of God. He says to enter the kingdom of God, you must receive it as a child or fully dependent, all in, completely reliant on his kingdom. And now in our very next passage, Mark presents us a God, an obstacle, a barrier to life in God's kingdom. So let us look at how wealth became an obstacle to this rich man we read about. In verse 17, it says, As Jesus started on his way, on his way to Jerusalem, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting to see the man's urgency in this passage. We're not told why he's so urgent. Jesus doesn't seem to be surrounded by a massive crowd that he can't get into. But the man has this burning question in his heart. And so Mark tells us that he runs up to Jesus and falls down on his knees right before him. And he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question of who can be saved? How do I get into the kingdom of God? These ideas are all synonymous with one another in our passage. And of course, the man is rightly concerned for his soul. And so Jesus responds in verse 18 with a question, as Jesus likes to do. He likes to respond to a question with a question. He says, why do you call me good? Then gives the statement that no one is good but God alone. 
Now, of course, Jesus is not denying his divinity, as some have suggested in this passage, but he's making a rhetorical point. It is right to call him good because he is God. And so Jesus recites from the second part of the Ten Commandments, or oftentimes what we call the second table of the Ten Commandments, all about loving your neighbor. And the man responds to this. He says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, I don't think this is insincere. I think the man was genuinely answering the question. You know, that in general, that he has kept these things. Of course, he hasn't done these things perfectly. No one does these things perfectly. But I don't think we should read anything into his response that he was, that he, he had an inflated view of his ability to keep these commandments because Jesus doesn't treat it that way. But the passage says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And the man was probably a great neighbor, probably somebody who cared deeply for those around him. And on the surface, he would have been somebody we would have loved to have a member of our church. He cared for others and he was well off. But Jesus doesn't end with that commandment because we know that salvation doesn't come just through merely doing good deeds, but righteous living as a result of a much greater reality of something else. And so Jesus looks at him and says, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. And then we see one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Right in front of this man was the living Lord, was Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, extending to him an offer of salvation, of eternal life, of life in his kingdom. And the man walked away from it sad because he didn't want to give up his wealth. This passage reminds me of a story that I had in my life early on in ministry. When I was in seminary, I, was, I had the opportunity to work with this church plant in the northern Andover area. And one of my responsibilities was working with the youth group. And we had a small group of about 10 or so, but I got to know those kids so well, and we had a great time together. We did retreats, you know, all the youth group things. We met weekly for Bible study. We met each other on Sundays, and we would talk about faith and how do we apply that to our lives. And there was this girl who was in that group named Jen. And Jen, she was bright, funny, smart, uh, just a wonderful person to be around, a great neighbor. And over and over again, we would talk about the gospel. And I would say, Jen, why won't you accept Jesus Christ? Why won't you believe in this? Why won't you put your faith in him? And in a very mature response for a high school girl, she said, because I don't want to give up my life. I know that this will cost me something, and I want to live my life how I want to live it. And granted, she didn't live a crazy life, but she knew that following Jesus was going to cost her something. And it broke my heart because over and over again, she would walk away from the offer of Jesus to her for salvation, for life and his kingdom. 
And then immediately following 22, in the next three verses, we see three warnings of how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 23, 24, and 25, it says, Jesus looked around and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then in the end of verse 25, um, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. These verses ought to make us stop and take a deep look into our own souls. That how often do we put what is convenient, what is easy, what is right in front of us over doing what we know is right, over what we know the Lord is calling to us? How often do we put our status and our comfort over something God may be calling us to? What are the obstacles in your life that prevent you from following Jesus with your whole heart? And to be clear, I don't believe that Jesus is saying that it is sinful to have wealth. I don't believe he's saying that at all. And I don't believe that Jesus is saying that this is something that all Christians should have to do. I believe that Jesus is actually addressing the needs of this particular man. What is keeping this man from eternal life? There are many examples in Scripture of Christians who had wealth and are praised. We know that some of the disciples still had the tools of their livelihood in their homes. Uh, in Luke 15, or Mark 15, we read about Joseph of Arimathea, who is a man of great means. Luke talks about a woman who supported Jesus' ministry from her own means in Luke 8. In Luke 19, we read of Zacchaeus, who sold only half of what he had and gave it away to the poor. But Jesus had proclaimed that salvation had come to his house. In Acts 4 and 5, we know that there are wealthy who, who gave to the common need of the church to help support it. But I also think, however, if we breathe a sigh of relief at all these examples, that Jesus is not necessarily calling us to give up our wealth, then I believe that this passage is talking to us. It should all make us a little uncomfortable. Uh, one of the shows I used to love watching up uh, growing up was The Simpsons. And uh, Homer is, is working in a factory, and he's at his job in a factory, and all of a sudden, he, he gets, he's hungry. So he walks over to the vending machine at work, and he reaches into his pocket and pulls him inside out and realizes he has no money. So what does Homer do? He decides he's going to stick it to the man. And so Homer reaches up into the vending machine to try to get a soda out. He reaches his arm all the way up into the vending machine and then all of a sudden he goes to pull his arm out and it's stuck. Right? Homer, he cannot get his arm out of the vending machine. He's pulling, pulling, and pulling and he can't get his arm out. And so in the next few scenes, we see Homer walking around the factory, lugging around this vending machine. And so of course, lugging around this vending machine, he starts to get tired, so he decides to give up and he parks that vending machine next to the snack vending machine. Now, of course, Homer is hungry from lugging around this vending machine all over the place. So then what does he do? He reaches up to get a snack into the second vending machine. And then, of course, his arm gets stuck. So now we see Homer stuck with an arm up each vending machine, and he can't move anywhere. And then somehow through the miracle of cartoon magic with no arms, he, he, he calls his wife Marge at home, and she sends people to come help him. And so we see these, these workers who have this big circular saw, and the, you know, they're going to do the only thing they know how to do to get him unstuck, and saw his arm off. 
And one of the workers looks into the vending machine. He's trying to fix it. And he says, Homer, are you still holding on to that can of soda? And Homer says, yeah, what's the big deal? And then the next scene is everyone laughing at Homer because he's holding on to a can and that's why he can't get his arm out. And I believe oftentimes that we hold on to our things so loosely or so tightly that prevent us from following Jesus. We have our arms stuck. We're grabbing onto our possessions, our status, the things in earth we think we need. And, and all to get free, all we have to do is to let go and follow Jesus. But we hold on to our possessions so tightly that they, they keep us stuck. They weigh us down. And we don't follow Jesus like we know we should because we love what we have in our hand more than we love the freedom to follow Jesus. How tightly do we put our security and our earthly wealth and possessions? Our passage is telling us that we need to hold on to these things so loosely. When asked, Jesus said that the greatest commandments are love of God and love of neighbor. And the man appears to love his neighbor well, but he loves his riches more than God. So what was the one thing that he lacked? True love for God. The first part of the commandments. The man's wealth, his materialism, keeps him from following Jesus. And perhaps the greatest parallel for us today would be, what if God was calling you to missions? What if God was calling you to a foreign land? Somewhere where you wouldn't have the means that you had. Your kids wouldn't have the access to the schools that they have here. Would you be willing to lay your job, your house, your career on the altar to go into full-time missions if Jesus was calling you to that? And this is something, even as a pastor, I struggle with all the time. And I can even try to rationalize, Lord, I'm already serving you as a pastor. Surely you wouldn't be calling me to go in the middle of nowhere to reach an unreached people. And so when I pray, I ask all the time, I say, Lord, show me what I'm holding on to tighter than I'm holding on to you. God, am I willing to give up my job, my car, my kids' access to education, my family, my friends, if I felt that you were calling me to go somewhere where I would have so much less and it's a gut-wrenching self-assessment. And if I'm honest, a lot of times the answer is no. And so I pray, God, change my heart. That I would hold on to all these things loosely. That I hold on to the comforts of life loosely. And so when we read this passage, we ought to have the same shock as the disciples had. And toward the end of the passage, we see that Peter with his exclamation of, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. Lord, is this enough? Have we done enough, Lord, to enter the kingdom of God? What does Jesus say? He says that it is difficult to enter the kingdom of God, but not impossible. Because with God, all things are possible. And we are reminded that salvation is not of our own doing. Salvation doesn't come from us. None of us have the ability to save ourselves. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation comes from God. It is the gift of God 
to us. With man, this is impossible. It is impossible for anybody. But with God, all things are possible. So who can be saved? The answer, those who follow the way of Jesus. Those who respond to his invitation to follow him. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? Following Jesus or being his disciple is about learning to live the life of the kingdom of God. And in this, we learn that being a Christian is more than a transaction of salvation, but an invitation to follow the way of Jesus, to live as a member of his kingdom. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than anything else in the Gospels. Jesus was all about the kingdom of God. He says that he brought it when he came and he will bring it in full when he returns. But consumerism, I believe, has bled into the way we think about and practice our faith. We tend to want faith on our terms. And we certainly don't like it when anyone challenges us that maybe we are not following him closely enough. And we have let the idea of a personal decision to follow Jesus become absent of discipleship. Of course, I believe a decision to follow Jesus is important, but not from a life apart from discipleship. And we can talk about conversion and discipleship as if they are completely two different things. But Jesus never talks about them in this way. Jesus talks about life in the kingdom. To believe in him is to become a part of his kingdom. Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of the nations, teaching them to obey, to follow his way. He doesn't instruct his disciples to go out and tell people to make a one-time decision for Jesus and then go on their own way. Discipleship is about life and his kingdom, about learning to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Philippians 3. He says to the church in Philippi, he says, join together in following my example. Why? Because Paul was following the example of Jesus. He says, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Keep your eyes on those who live the way of the cross, who follow after Jesus. For as I have often told you before and tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction and their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Discipleship is about learning to live the life of the kingdom, following the way of Jesus. But this is not absent from the love of Christ. Following Jesus is not a form of legalism, but love. Jesus tells his disciples, if you love me, then keep my commandments. It is from their love for him that they were to follow his commandments. And love for Jesus is shown in our loyalty to him. It's about loving him more than we love anything else in this life. And this is what the rich man lacked. Following Jesus is about love for him. Jesus died for the world because he loved the world. 
And so he then doesn't turn and make a bunch of legalistic demands of how we are to live, but invites us into a life of his love. When you become a citizen of a new country, you willfully agree to live under the authority of the government of that country. For example, if you become a citizen of the United States, you have to say an oath of allegiance promising to support and live under the authority of the Constitution. And when we come into the kingdom of God, we swear an oath of allegiance to follow the way of Jesus, of living life in his kingdom. And life in his kingdom is the exact opposite of consumerism, is the exact opposite of love for money. It's not about how much I have or how much I can build for myself, but about how much I can give away. Not how much I can be served, but how much can I serve. Life in the kingdom is about living out the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says that blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted because of righteousness. He tells us that we are to live as salt and life, to not be angry, but to be reconciled, not to lust, but to love. But all this discipleship in the end is not about making our lives miserable, but joy. In its simplest definition, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his work, The Cost of Discipleship, defines discipleship simply as joy. He says that joy should be at the heart of every disciple. And Romans Paul instructs the believer, saying that the kingdom of God is full of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. N.T. Wright describes discipleship this way. He says it is to allow oneself to be grasped afresh day by day by the compelling love and radical agenda of the most extraordinary man who ever walked on the earth and to be sustained by his powerful presence. Becoming a disciple of Christ is about experiencing true joy in this life. Following him is about experiencing joy. It was for the joy that was before Christ that he was enabled to endure the cross. Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured it. It wasn't that the cross was joyful, but it was for the joy set before him that he was able to endure his sufferings. And sometimes discipleship can be, made, can be difficult. We can be called to suffer, but it is for the joy set before us in Christ Jesus that we are able to walk through difficult times. For the inheritance that he has before us. And I think sometimes we can be afraid to follow Jesus with our whole lives because we hold on to our things so tightly. And at some level, I think we are worried to hold on to our things loosely because we are worried that the things we are holding on to will not bring us as much joy as following Jesus. Once again, I believe that we have such a hard time holding on to our things loosely because we believe that what we are holding on to will bring us greater joy than following Jesus. 
Does your walk with the Lord, does following Jesus bring you more joy than your car, your career, your 401k, your degrees, or those other things that you associate with your status in this world? Would you be willing to give them away if the Lord asked you? Sometimes my kids are afraid to try new things. Um, They love the security and comfort of what they know and what they like. And so as a parent, sometimes I have to push my kids to try new things, and I encourage them to trust me. Now, of course, sometimes this doesn't go well. Um, I tell them to trust me, this will be fun, and they hate it, and they start crying, and, you know. But for the sake of illustration, I'm not going to give one of those examples. Um, So last summer, we took our kids, we were down in Virginia visiting my parents, and there was this water park I I used to love going to as I was growing up. So for me, it was a lot of fun to take my children to a place that I, a place that I loved going to when I was growing up. And so we go into the water park, and they have this really big area for, for kids. And so that's the first place they want to go. You know, there's little slides, the pools aren't very deep, and so they're playing and having a fun. But off in the distance, there's these massive water slides. And so I keep encouraging my oldest son. I was like, Levi, let's go on one of those slides together. It will be so much fun. You will have a great time. You know, we can get, we can get a two-person tube. We'll go down together. You will love it. Trust me. He's like, nope. Nope, nope, nope. And so I keep encouraging him. I'm like, Levi, just try it just once. Let's do this. So eventually he says, okay. So we make our way over to the water slide area. We grab the two-person tube and we walk up the massive staircase to go up to the top of these water slides. So Levi is kind of reluctant going the whole way up. And we get up to the top. And so he, so I let him pick, okay, which one of these do you want to go on? So of course he picks the one to him, looks the least intimidating. So we go to that one, we get into the, we get into the tube and we just wait for that faithful moment when the lifeguard at the top gives the tube a little kick in the back and sends us flying down this water slide. So we shoot down the first little drop. Our tube starts, you know, flinging from side to side. We're spinning around. And the whole time I'm just anticipating what, what is the react, what is Levi going to do? And then all of a sudden this burst of laughter and joy comes from his mouth and a huge sigh of relief from me. But then he's just laughing and loving every second of this ride the whole way down. And then, of course, after that moment, those are, that's all he wanted to do at the park was ride down these big slides. And the reality is, is that following the way of Jesus can be scary. We don't know what we may be asked to give up. We don't know where it may lead us. And we don't know how fast it will go. But we know that we can trust Jesus. And we know that he is in the tube with us. And when we trust in him and allow him to lead us, then we will experience true joy in this life. Remember, Jesus says that he has come to give us life to the full. Following Jesus is about joy. And joy ought to be at the heart of every disciple Because apart from joy, the call to discipleship would be overwhelming. 
But when Jesus is our greatest joy, it frees us to hold on to the things of this world loosely because they pale in comparison to the joy that is available to us who are in Christ Jesus. Discipleship is about choosing Jesus every day to make the decision to wake up, as we are told in Mark 8, to carry our cross and follow him. Taking up our cross means that we put to death consumerism, the love of wealth, materialism, waking up every day and putting to death the sinful nature of our flesh and choosing to follow Jesus with our whole hearts and with joy to live his life of obedience and generosity in this world. So who can inherit eternal life? Who can be saved? It is those who follow the way of the cross, those who follow the way of Jesus, those who respond to his call to follow me. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you invite us into the life of your kingdom. God, that we don't have to live this life alone, but you have shown us what it means to truly live. Forgive us, Lord, when we let our materialism and the comforts of life get in the way of us following you with our whole hearts. We pray, God, that you would help us to hold on to our things loosely and hold on to you tightly. God, would you restore the joy in our hearts of what it is to be a disciple, to follow you. Lord, we thank you that you have come to give us life and the full life in your kingdom. Lord, may we live that out, not for our own sake, but for yours and for the sake of the world. God, we pray it is our prayer that our love for you would be evident in the way that we live our life. Lord, we thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for the gift of eternal life. And we thank you that we can start living that life now on this earth while we wait for you to come again. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.